Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Chapter 25, the book of Genesis, beginning in verse 19. <clears throat> and these are the offspring of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, from Padam Aram, sister of Laban, the Armenian, as a wife for himself. Isaac entreated, entreated Hashem opposite his wife because she was barren. Adonai allowed himself to be entreated by him, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children agitated within her, and she said, If so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Adonai. And Adonai said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two regimes from your inside shall be separated. The might shall pass from one regime to the other, and the elder shall serve the younger." When her term to bear grew full, and then behold, there were twins in her, room, in her womb. The first one emerged red, entirely like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. After that, his brother emerged from his hand, grasping onto the heel of Esau, so he called his name Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The lads grew up, and Esau became one who knows trapping, a man of the field, but Jacob was a wholesome man, abiding in tents. Isaac loved Esau, for game was in his mouth, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob simmered a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, Pour into me now some of that red, very red stuff, for I am exhausted. He therefore called his name Edom. And Jacob said, Sell as this day your birthright to me. And Esau said, Look, I'm going to die. So of what use to me is a birthright? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, got up and left. Thus Esau spurned the birthright. Baruch Hashem. I'm going to just share some insights, more of an, an, an exegese kind of drosh this morning as i going going through uh, these various verses, and we're going to learn some, some backstory, we're going to learn some meaning, and, and prayerfully uh, learn some lessons. It's interesting that tradition teaches us, by the way, that, uh, that Rebecca was born at or just after the Akedah of Isaac. Now, whether or not that's to be taken literally is up for debate, but I think it's an interesting allegory that the wife of the Akedah was born at the Akedah. <laughs> the wife of the Akedah was born at the Akedah. And interestingly, she was also barren. All of the matriarchs were barren, and uh, it's it's perplexing to me, you would think that if, if Hashem wanted to uh, cause there to be the prolifi- proliferation of the Jewish people, 
that why he would allow the matriarchs to be barren, but I think that the fact that, that the matriarchs were barren, uh, Sarah was barren, and of course Rebecca was barren, and Rachel was barren. The only one who really wasn't barren was Leah. Um, but the, the other three were, and I think that Hashem was trying to show a picture of a supernatural uh, birth is going to be the precedent for all Israel. Sarah it t- teaches us, and the insights, the Hasidic insights teach us that Sarah was able to give birth to, uh, to uh, Isaac because literally the Ruach came upon her. It literally says that. The Ruach came upon her and she was able to conceive Isaac. With respect to Rebekah, it tells us in the insights that she didn't have a womb. That God supernaturally created a, a womb within her and she was able to give birth to Esau and to Jacob. Let's start with chapter 1, and, or excuse me, uh, chapter 25 and the, the first verse here in 2019. Uh, it says, These are the chronicles of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. It says here, The Torah is teaching us that when a man leaves behind a virtuous son who keeps the Torah, it is a very precious thing in God's eyes. This is especially true in the case of a saint who is the son of a saint. His status is extremely high. The Torah says, These are the chronicles of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Now, Ma'am Moez brings down that that phrase seems to be redundant. But the Torah is teaching us here that Isaac was very happy to have a father like Abraham, and Abraham was all too happy to have a precious son like Isaac. But there's another allusion it's saying here, Ma'am Moez, to that, to that verse. Uh, that it says that there were gossipers who were saying that, that Abimelech was actually the father of Isaac, that he had relations with Sarah while she was in his custody, and they, that Abraham and Sarah were trying to pass off Isaac as if uh, the boy was theirs, but in fact, according to gossip, it was Abimelech. So what God did is he made it so that Isaac's face was a precise image, a precise replica as we would say, a spitting image of his father Isaac, which is why it says here, Abraham fathered Isaac. Abraham fathered Isaac. So again, this goes back to the concept that when it came time uh, for Abraham to offer up Isaac as an offering for all of Israel, that the father was literally offering up the image of his son. Now, this is, I've talked about this extensively, but let me just... Lay it out again because you never know when somebody new might be watching and needs to understand this concept. That that the sages teach us, the insights teach us that Abraham looked just like Adam. And Adam looked just like Hashem, God. And now Isaac looks just like Abraham, who looks just like Adam, who looks just like Hashem. So Abraham looks like the father. And Isaac looks like Abraham, so therefore Isaac is also the image of the father. And so when Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain to offer him up, it's literally the father who's offering his image on the altar. That's a very important statement to make, and it's uh, critical in order to understand why Yeshua, one of the reasons why Yeshua had to come as a manifestation of Hashem and be offered up 
Why, Yeshua said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why would Yeshua even say that? That's why. It all goes back to the Akedah. Another insight from Amalouis says, there's a rule that a man should be married when he's 18 years old. That's a, a, uh, a, a teaching in Yiddishkeit. However, Isaac waited until he was 40. In fact, tradition tells us that Isaac was actually 36 years older than uh, Rebekah. That's quite an age difference. But it's not uncommon in Torah because we learn that uh, Ruth was 40 years younger than Boaz. So those kinds of uh, age differences are not uncommon at all. It says, Isaac waited until he was 40, and the reason he did is because he was a scholar in the academy, and he wished to continue his studies without being distracted by the responsibilities of a family. A married man is concerned with supporting his household and his children, which lessens his concentration on the Torah. So Isaac therefore waited until he was 40. By then he had had a comprehensive knowledge of the Torah, and it was taught that until a man is 40, he does not completely understand his master's teaching. The idea in Judaism is that until you reach the age of 40, you're not, you don't quite get it. And, uh, of course, 40 is one of those very common numbers, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, 40 day, days of temptation. 40 is one of those numbers that seem to be that growing period. So Isaac said, I want to wait until I'm 40 to get married because he realized Isaac had obviously a very unique mission amongst the three patriarchs, that he was the only one of the three that was offered on the altar. And so he knew that he needed to be sure that when he took a wife that he was a Torah scholar. No one else waited that long, but he did. Rebecca was also uniquely special. There's a lot to say about Rebecca. You know, it talks about... Um, and the insights that when she went to the spring, that one of the things that triggered Eliezer to say this might be somebody special is that in, in, in an effort for her not to be immodest when she went to draw water, it says the water came to her. The water drew up to her. She was a very unique girl. Even though she was raised in a daughter in the, in the house of uh, Bethuel and, and Laban, it was a wicked family, it says here. She was born in a house of immorality and a house of idolatry. But it says, Rebecca did not conform. She did not conform to her surroundings. You know, that's such a life lesson for us because it's very tempting for people to want to conform to their surroundings. And I think that one of the things that people are experiencing, hopefully and prayerfully, with this COVID-19 uh, coronavirus pandemic that's causing us to stay at home and socially distance is perhaps it's breaking some bad habits of conformity. You know, where you have to be, go and do everything and be everywhere. People are learning to be uh, nonconformist. <laughs> it kind of engenders that, doesn't it? That, hey, I don't have to have something, I don't have to leave the house every, every uh, Friday night and go to the ball game and go to the here and go to there. It's like I said in that little clip that I did yesterday about the, the ladies lighting the Sabbath candles. This is a unique opportunity where uh, the vast majority of households across the country 
Everybody's at home on Friday night not doing it. There's no, there's no ball game to go to. There's no movie to go to. There's no entertainment to go to. So you're home. You might as well light candles and welcome the Shabbat. You know, Hashem has a way to say, if you won't stay home and, and welcome the Sabbath, I'll make you stay home. We'll give you no choice. But again, it's for our very best because God is making us stay home so that we can bring the blessing. Right? It's for our very best. So Isaac pleads with God, it says in verse 21, on behalf of his wife, and she was, because she was sterile. It actually says they went to, they took, he took his wife, this very important situation going on here. She's barren, so it says he took his wife to Mount Moriah to the place of the Akedah to pray for her. This is from Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 32. That's a very common thing to do is to go to the place of Azotic. It's interesting to me that normally when you go to the place of Azotic to pray, the Azotic is there in the grave, and you're praying to Hashem in the merit of the Azotic. When we go to the empty tomb in Jerusalem, the tomb is empty. There's, there's no Azotic there because he's resurrected, praise God. It's interesting to me that Isaac took his wife to the place where there was an empty altar. He took his place, his wife, to the place where there was no, there wasn't a Zodic there. It was an altar. It was just a place of sacrifice. So there's three reasons, it says, are given here why, why Rachel was barren. What was it? What was the reason that God made it so that Rebecca was barren? It says here, Rebecca's family blessed her as completely as they could, when she left, and it says one of the reasons is, is Providence did not want the nations to say that her children came about as a result of the blessings of her pagan family, number one. Number two, God has a strong desire to hear the prayers of his saints. Since this publicizes the efficiency of prayer, God therefore gives them cause to pray so that he can fulfill their request. One of the reasons that trials and tribulations come along in our life is so that God can hear our voice. It draws us near to him. There's nothing, I mean, this is face it. We wish it wasn't the case, right? But the reality is, is that there's nothing like a good trial. There's nothing like a good tribulation. There's nothing like a good illness, God forbid, to draw us near to God. Nothing, nothing accomplishes that quite like that. And so Hashem uses these things to draw us near so that we can pray to Him so that He can fulfill our request. It says, the third reason, a human being receives good in this world according to God's will, not as a result of his merit, and not as, as a result of pure chance. God oversees those who have faith in Him in order to give them what they desire he saw this, and we saw this rather in Haye Sarah when Eliezer prayed for a suitable wife for Isaac. And fourthly, it says, the Egyptian exile was to have begun as soon as Isaac was born. God wanted the patriarchs and matriarchs to be sterile so as to shorten the period of the exile. From the time that Isaac was born until our father immigrated to Egypt was 190 years. Adding to this the 17 years that Jacob lived after they settled in Egypt, we find that the patriarchs themselves prevented 207 years of subjugation. 
Furthermore, true slavery could not begin until after the death of Joseph and all his brothers had died. If the patriarchs had had the normal ability to have children, the period of subjugation would have been much greater. <laughs> so here we see, like, God, why have you done this to me? Why have you allowed me to be barren? Why have I not been able to have children yet? And God says, it's my grace. Yes, Hesed, it's loving, my loving kindness has prevented you from having children until now. Because that would have lengthened the subjugation. You know, it's, we just, this is why we have to look at difficult situations and good situations in the same vein. Because everything, if we're in covenant, then everything is in a shim. The natural question is, is that, Sarah couldn't have children, and so she gave her handmaiden to Abraham, that's Hagar, in order so that Hagar could have a child, it would be attributed to Sarah. Hagar was not Abraham's wife, which is a very important distinction at that time. She was simply a slave, a servant of Sarah, and Sarah gave uh, her to him in order to have a child that would be attributed to Sarah, that of course was Ishmael. So why didn't Isaac do that? Why didn't Isaac take uh, a handmaiden of Rebecca? Certainly Rebecca had plenty of handmaidens. Why didn't he take a handmaiden of Rebecca and, and do the same thing? Well, it says here that Isaac did not want to marry one of his maids as Abraham did in the case of, of Hagar. Why? Because from the time that he was bound on the altar, Isaac was considered like a perfect sacrifice. Therefore, he could not marry a slave. He couldn't marry someone because Hagar didn't convert, you understand. She didn't convert. She didn't convert till later. Later, she converted and also Ishmael made teshuva and she became Keturah. She changed her name Keturah. Then she became the wife of Abraham. But until that, it says here Mary, but it just means like, like uh, a concubine, basically, to join with her or whatever. Um, he couldn't marry a slave like, because this is how it would have been this, with the Noahide situation. You can't, this, he was too on too much of a high level because he had become... The, sacri the sacrifice for Israel. That's why. So he took his wife to Mount Moriah and they prayed. And God created within Rebekah the womb that she did not have. Now imagine that for a moment. Just think about that, how, God's, uh, how God operates. That he ch God chose Rebekah for Isaac to be Isaac's wife. He showed Eliezer, this is the one. But Hashem knew that she was the one that didn't have the womb. But yet, she was the chosen one. It's fascinating. It's fascinating how God operates. That this, is the, this is the woman he's chosen, and God knows he didn't have a womb. That's all part of the plan. So, it says, the children clashed inside of her. In verse 22, the children clashed inside of her. 
And she said, if, if this is the way it is, why should I go on? And she went to inquire of God. Literally, she went, when it says she went to inquire of God, it says that she went to the, to the yeshiva of Shem and Noah to ask them what's going on. That's what, what it means by what she went to inquire of God. It says, and, but this is the battle that was going on inside. It says, whenever Rebekah walked past the academy of Shem and Eber, Jacob would push as if he wanted to come out into the world and go attend class. When she walked by an idolatrous temple, Esau did the same thing. The question becomes, what is Rebekah doing walking by an idolatrous temple? Because you're not really supposed to do that. So it says in Ma'am Loez, it is forbidden, in fact, to walk near a temple of idolatry. But Rebekah was emulating Sarah. She was trying to convert people to faith in God, just as Abraham had done. She was a missionary. She had her little stand out there. She had some tracks. Like Sarah, she worked with the women. Rebecca would walk back and forth near the idolatrous temple, engaging women in conversation and teaching them the ways of God. At these times, Esau would push against her as if he wanted to go worship at the temple. So, so much for the people out there that say, well, you know, you should just... Uh, if you're a non-Jew, you should stay as you are. That's the problem with that is Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob, Leah and Rachel, and Yosef, none of them believe that. None of them believe that. Nobody got that memo. So here you have Rebekah, this, this, this special woman, the wife of the, of the image of the Father offered on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins, she is, can you say that's a model for us? She's out there trying to get people to come into covenant. She's trying to get Gentiles to convert and become Jews. But today, we have the supposed bride of Christ out there trying to get Gentiles to stay Gentile. The exact, as is so often the case, the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The exact, I will say it again. Say it again. The exact opposite of what the Bible teaches is what, what we have people out there doing in the name of the God of Israel. Has shalom, right? Indeed. So it says here, and this is another interesting insight. So the, the, the children give, they, they, uh, they are born. Um, Esau is a man of the field. He's, he's, he's the man's man. I thought it was a cute little meme, by the way, as a total aside. Somebody put on Facebook, I don't know who, and it shows a man's man, kind of a burly man. And it says, during this time of uh, worldwide uh, famine and, and, and survival mode, I bet a lot of ladies are rethinking their uh, metrosexual boyfriends with the skinny jeans and the man buns. And thinking more about the, uh, the man who can hunt and fish, he's a little burly and got a big long beard and kind of can build a fire. And so I, the women are going, you know, I'm, I might want to drop metrosexual and go back to the, uh, uh, the man's man. 
in a, in a day and age when I can't even find toilet paper. He might not even make me some. Whereas, uh, whereas metrosexual is just, he's, he's crying because there's no Charmin. Hey, 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 it's, 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 it's times like this where, where, the, where the rubber hits the road. You don't ever want to be with a man that uses you as a shield. <laughs> you want to be with a man who's, who is your shield, right? Rukasim. Hallelujah. Go get him, honey. I'll text for help. <laughs> uh, I'm half kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm one third kidding. So with that, with that, we read about Jacob. Here we have Esau, who's like the hunter and what have you. And we, it, it says that, he, that Jacob abides in the tents, and it sounds like he's kind of a girly man. Like he just liked to hang around with mama, whereas Esau likes to go out and be with daddy and go hunting and stuff. That's not what's going on, actually. Abiding in tents means that he's deeply spiritual. So this is the insight from Rabbi Monk. It says, this verse refers to the tents of Shem and the tents of Ever, where Jacob studied the divine law. His grandfather had had the soul of a missionary, of a preacher, and continuously proclaimed the majesty of God to his contemporaries. It's talking about Abraham. His missionary work, this is Rabbi Monk talking about Abraham. His missionary work was his life's goal. It was his entire existence was to convince men and lead them to God. But the grandson was no longer possessed of this missionizing flame. His nature led him to concentrate on his study and knowledge of God. Thus the patriarch showed us two fundamental concepts both equally legitimate, expansion and concentration. <laughs> In other words, we need to be missionaries, but we also need to be people who study the Word of God and, and know what it is we're trying to teach people. That's what it's saying about Jacob. So here you have Esau, and, and last night we had a great uh, discussion about these passages. Hadassah read the passage as she typically does. Uh, the, the, the Genesis portion of the week. And we, the question that she asked was, how, how is it that growing up, the parents didn't notice that Esau was a bad boy? And it gives us some insights here to that. One of the answers is it wasn't until 13 that he started to reveal his true character. But this is something, a very telling insight here, uh, that see if this sounds familiar in, in our modern or relative modern-day theology. It says, according to another opinion, Esau later circumcised himself. As long as Isaac was alive, both his children kept all the commandments. But after Isaac died, Esau stopped keeping them. Now, if you didn't quite pick up on that, let me explain something to you. Esau is a euphemism uh, you, the, the name Esau is used in Judaism as a euphemism for two things. One is Rome, and the other is the church. 
Christianity. So while the Messiah is alive, while the Akedah is alive, while the image of the Father laid down for the atonement for our sins is alive, we kept the commandments. But once he did, once he died, we stopped. That's what it's saying here, that Esau stopped keeping them. Jacob continued to keep them. Esau became Rome, a world power dominating the whole globe. Jacob remained a little seemingly insignificant nation, yet remained keeping the commandments. So here you have Esau who's just, okay, while he's alive, I did it. But after he died, I'm out. I'm no longer keeping the commandments. Jacob, who does the Bible honor? Does he honor the one who, who forsook the commandments? Or does, he honor, does the Bible honor the one who, though insignificant in the eyes of men, continued to keep the commandments? The question is, whose team do you want to be upon? Uh, think about that for a moment. Think about all the people in, in history, human history, who have wanted to do away with the commandments, like circumcision and Shabbat the holidays, kosher eating. Who are we talking about here? Well, just to name a, a few. We're talking about the Caesars, the Pharaohs, Hitler, uh, Stalin, right? People like that. Other dictators, the Satan. I mean, really think about who, think who's on the team of no Torah. Who's on the no Torah team? Antiochus Epiphanes, that's a great one. Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, the Greeks, the rulers, the pagans. That's on, that's on Team No Torah. <laughs> team No Torah. That, so when, you, when you're picking up Team No Torah, you're, you're, you're going for Hitler, Stalin, Haman, Antiochus, Caesars, Pharaohs. Who? Con oh, oh, uh, Constantine. That's over here. And Team No Torah. Team Torah over here is, oh, let's think of a few. How about, how about Abraham? How about Isaac? How about Jacob? How about King David? Right? How about Elijah? Uh, here's a heavy hitter. How about Yeshua? <laughs> how, about, how about Kepha? How about Yochanan? How about, how about all the Talmudim? Hezekiah, Ezra, Manasseh. Haggai, Zechariah, how about Mord uh, Mordecai, uh. How, about, how about Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah? How about uh, Esther, Ruth? How about, uh, how about the one who forsook Team No Torah and came over to Team Torah? Somebody like, uh, 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 like Ruth, right? And uh, uh, I just went blank. The heart, uh, Who? Obadiah, Obadiah, yeah, he was, Miriam, oh, that's, yes, yes, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, that's who I was trying to think, man, right, so, no, seriously, it is a sports game, so you can't watch sports, but you can watch this game, by the way, I'm going to tell you who wins the Super Bowl, it's Team Tora, okay, <laughs> it's a blowout. The blowout, it's a blowout. We, we blitz all day long, they can't even get a pass off. 
Now listen, I want you to think about those two, because nobody puts it to you like this. You're not going to hear this anywhere else about, except right here. It's true. You're not going to hear what I just said. You won't hear anywhere else but on this, on this program that comes to you live every Shabbat. Now, when you're looking at those two team lineups, ask yourself a question. Whose team do you want to be on? You say, I don't believe in Torah observance. I don't believe in circumcision. I don't believe in eating kosher. I don't believe in keeping the Sabbath. I, I think all that's done away with today. I don't, I don't think that we have to do Passover. I think instead of Passover, we do Easter. I, all that stuff, Old Testament's been done away with. Great. Then you're, you're going to be snapping the ball from Stalin. You're going to be catching a pass from Hitler. You're going to be running a route for Pharaoh. Yeah. And con, con, Constantine and the, and, 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 the, and the Caesars are calling your plays. And guess who's up in the owner's box? That's the Satan. That's true. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. That's your team over here. Now, if you're like, no, wait a minute. I think that Torah is for today. I think that we should be keeping the Shabbat. We should be eating kosher. I think that we should be following God's word. It's never done away with. It's not the Old Testament. It's the Tanakh. Then you're on, you're on team King David. He's the, he's the head coach. Oh, yeah, she was the head coach. Excuse me. King David's the quarterback. You're running routes. You're running routes from Mordecai. And the cheerleaders are Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel Lick. They're, 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 they're modest, though. There's the dude. That's right. <laughs> Zach and Joseph, they're the ones calling the plays. Yeah, I got you. And by the way, the owner's box is a shim. So you just got to, it's real simple. It's not hard. You just got to figure out what jersey you want to wear. And by the way, there's, there's no spectators in this game. You have to be on one team or another. There, one team or another. There's no, there, that's, that's your choice. Now, I don't know about you. I, everybody's smart. I think as you look at those two team lines, you're like, well, let's see. No, I'm going to go team Torah. Of course you are. Of course you are. How do we go from rags to riches? You want to hear a rags to riches story? So here's this, just a real quick. We don't have anything else to do today. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Go to your closet? Honey, I'm bored in the living room. I'm going to go to the other side of the house. <laughs> a Roman once encountered Rabban Gamaliel and asked, Who will rule the world after us? The great rabbi took out a blank piece of paper and wrote on it, after this, quote, after this, his brother emerged and his hand was grasping Esau's heel. The Roman was astounded and said, see how much we can learn from these sages. It says, although he could have re recited the verse verbally, Rambam, Rabbi Gamaliel went to the trouble of taking out a piece of paper and writing it down. In those days... People often communicated by hints. That's how women communicate today. <laughs> Rabbi, I'm just, uh, sorry, that's not in the insights. That's a quote from Rombel. Ra <laughs> Rabbi Gamaliel wanted to allude to the fact that although the Jews are downtrodden and oppressed by other nations, 
they would eventually be on the ascendancy. The finest paper is made from rags. These rags might have been thrown into the garbage where no one cared for them at all. They can be collected, processed, and made into the finest paper upon which the greatest thoughts would be written. Rags collected from the garbage can end up at the king's personal table and in his personal notebook. The same is true of the Jews. We are now like rags, subjugated and persecuted, but in the end, we'll be brought to the king's table and placed in his palace. The Roman had previously been aware of the verse, but he had assumed that it was simply meant that Jacob came out second. But now that Rabbi Gamaliel had written the verse on a, alone on a blank sheet of paper, he understood that it was not necessarily a continuation of the previous thought. It contained an illusion that after a long time, Jacob's descendants would be the dominant, even though they then had very low status. Why is it that Isaac loved Esau? It says the game was in his mouth. Was it because Isaac just thought his boy could hunt and fish and that's why he lived? No. It actually means that Isaac, or excuse me, that Esau rather, pretended to be very pious when in front of his father. That he would ask his father difficult halakhic questions that really Esau carried, not, cared nothing about. But in front of his father, he made it appear as if he was very pious, but in reality, he just didn't care. And so Isaac was duped into thinking that Esau was a very, very spiritual young man. That's what the problem was. Now, he didn't care a thing at all about his birthright. In fact, it's so bad. I just want to give you a couple more insights here as we're starting to wrap it up here. Esau's disdain for his birthright was so bad. Let me, let me back up. We, we, we need to be uh, obviously not like Esau. We need to be people that are love God and, and committed to his ways all the time, private, in, in public, what have you. Seeking his face, wanting to do his will, being sincere in who we are all the time. But Esau was so bad that the incident in, in, at which he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob over a bowl of lentil soup took place on the day that his grandfather Abraham died. Now, the insights bring down the list of sins that it had accomplished on or just before that day. One of them we know for sure happened on that day. I want you to think about this. Abraham's funeral is going on, and Esau is off doing this. Number one, he raped a young bride. Number two, he murdered a man, namely Nimrod. He denied the essence of God. He denied the immorality, immortality, excuse me, of the soul. That's, that's, the, that's the Sadducees. And he rejected his birthright. He did that all on the day that Abraham died. So it says in the insights that the reason he came in and was saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm about to die, it's, is he just realized that he had actually killed Nimrod because Nimrod had a special coat. There's an actual uh, 
whole insight in here about Mamlewes about the code of Adam. But Nimrod had the code of Adam, and Esau wanted that coat, so he killed Nimrod for it. He killed Nimrod for the coat of Adam on the day that Abraham died. Because he so, he so much didn't care at all about uh, the mission of Abraham that he decided that what he really wanted was he wanted the power. He wanted the gifts of the Spirit, but he didn't want the covenant. He wanted the gifts. He wanted the coat, but he didn't want the covenant. So he went out and decided, I'm going to go steal the coat, and I'm going to kill Nimrod. And some say he killed Nimrod and his ten men. Esau was a pretty bad boy. And he thought that someone was going to come and kill him. That's why he said, what good does this covenant do me since I'm going to die anyway? But Jacob wanted the covenant of Abraham. He wanted to fulfill the mission of Abraham. So it says that Esau said, please give me a swallow of this red stuff. It turns out that Jacob was making a pot of lentil stew and had filled a glass of wine and put it on a tray to take to his father Isaac. I've got an insight I could read, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But there is a halakha that where we get the custom of taking food to a funeral reception comes from Judaism. It's the halakha of Judaism that a mourner on the day of a funeral should not eat food that they have purchased or food that they have prepared themselves. But people are supposed to bring them food, and there's supposed to be a, a, a mourner's meal that takes place. This comes from Judaism. So this makes the birthright all the more special because I, excuse me, Jacob had made that meal, he made it himself, but he also bought the food himself because it's against Halakha for his father to have to pay for the food and make it himself. So he was carrying in this food because his father was mourning the death of his father, which was Jacob's grandfather, with a meal that Jacob had bought and paid for and made himself, a cup of wine and a bowl of lentil soup. And the, the re, lentil soup was a common uh, mourner's food because the lentils are round and it's supposed to teach that life is a cycle of, of life and death. That everyone who's ever lived is going to eventually die. And so it's supposed to bring comfort to the mourner. So when he sold this birthright, he literally bought it because he bought it with stuff that he had paid for and made. So it was truly his. So And so Esau... Spurn the birthright so much. I want you to understand the, 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 the impact of what Esau did because he knows that bowl is in that cup is for his grieving father. And he says, give it to me anyway. He stole. I want you to understand this. How Because we think about sin. You know, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. No, sin, my friends, is so much on a higher level than that. Esau said, he, he literally stole. Can you imagine you walk into a funeral and somebody's grieving the loss of a loved one and you go and take their plate? That's what he did. Exactly. The robbery. He stole his father's plate 
of lentils that he was going to be eating in order to overcome his grief for losing his father Abraham. Esau stole that. That's wicked. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that do bad things. But there's not very many people that would just go and take, take a grieving son's tray from him at his father's funeral. That's a whole level of low right there. It also teaches us, by the way, as an aside, that it's a huge mitzvah to bring food to a grieving person at a, at a funeral reception. That's a big mitzvah. But it says here that Esau saw this. It says, seeing the pot of food, Esau said, since, we, since when do you, do you do your own cooking? He seems to be oblivious to this. Why are you cooking lentils and to who are you giving them? Haven't you heard, asked Jacob, our grandfather Abraham died today. I'm cooking lentils because they are food for mourners. It's customary for mourners to eat the lentils, I just said, because they're around a cycle of life and death. So it says, now I see, says Esau. Listen to the Esau. Now I see. There is no judge and no justice. So just like the Sadducees, he denies, he denies reward and punishment. He says, Abraham was the greatest saint who ever lived. He kept God's commandments as well as humanly possible. Still, he did not even live as long as Noah or the other generations. I therefore see that religion has no value. That was Esau's heart, and that's why Jacob did what he did, and that's why later Rebekah did what she did to make sure that her son Jacob would receive the inheritance. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Amen.